Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Josh. I'm one of the elders here at Christchurch. I just want to add my uh, welcome uh, to Christchurch, and I'm going to be talking us through the passage that was just read. So before we do that, um, let's just pray. Our dear Father, as we hear from your word this morning, we pray that you would work powerfully by your Holy Spirit in giving us a mind of understanding and a heart of worship. As you speak to us, help us to recognize the authority of your Son. Help us to get rid of all pretense in us and enable us to give ourselves wholly to him in response to your grace to us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, I know you might not be able to tell it by my accent, but I haven't lived in Liverpool all my life. Um, Before moving to Liverpool 10 years ago, I lived in Nottingham for three years. And the thing that they like to point out to you in Nottinghamshire, as soon as you cross the border into Nottinghamshire, the thing that they want you to know, as you see on the sign, that it's Robin Hood's county. Now, the Nottinghamshire county... um, Tourist board could have made a big deal about the fact that Nottingham has got one of the country's best medical schools, that it's got a teaching hospital to rival the royal here. They could have said, (laughs) it's a funny one that, (laughs) they could have said um, that Nottingham is the city which has got one of only a handful of cricket grounds that hosts test cricket. They could have made a big deal about the fact that Nottingham has got England's oldest current professional football club. But no, what they want you to know as soon as you drive in is that this is where a probably fictional 900-year-old legend about a criminal might have been set. I say that cynically, but it's a good legend though, isn't it? Robin Hood, the hero of the people. He steals from the rich and gives to the poor He sets the world to rights. And if you're familiar with that Robin Hood legend, uh, you might remember that it's set during the time of King Richard. King Richard the Lionheart, as he's known. Uh, But for the entire um, canon of the Robin Hood stories, King Richard is out of the country. He's not present, and ruling in his place is his brother, Prince John. And in all of the stories... The rulers, like Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham, they are always wicked people. They're selfish. They're just out for themselves. I've not read an awful lot into the Robin Hood stories, but I always kind of wonder where King Richard stands. What if he came back? What would he make of what he saw? Whose side is he on? What would he think about the Sheriff of Nottingham, who embezzles money and overcharges people on taxes just to make money for himself? What would he make of Prince John, who denies people justice, and really he exploits the people in his kingdom? What would King Richard do with Robin Hood? He's a criminal, but he's devoting his life to the fair distribution of wealth. Or what about folks like Friar Tuck and Maid Marian, who they might not be the heroes, but secretly They're risking everything they have to give justice to the poor. Well, why am I talking about Robin Hood? It's because um, in Mark 12 here, we've got a not-too-dissimilar situation. Okay, there's no sheriffs or maids or feather caps or men in tights or bows and arrows. But Jesus, in the passage that we had read to us, is speaking as a ruler 
who has stepped into a kingdom that's rightfully his. And he says that in his kingdom, those who spend their lives loving themselves will be condemned. And those, for those whose lives are spent giving themselves, well, for those people, even their most insignificant acts make a huge contribution. So let's take a closer look at Jesus' teaching here. And the message of the first section, um, if you've got it open in your Bible, it splits nicely into three sections. And the message of the first section is don't underestimate the sun. Don't underestimate the sun. Look down again at verses 35 to 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, having faced a barrage of questions that you can read about in the previous verses, Jesus now decides to teach the crowd with a question of his own. It's right there in verse uh, 35. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, the simple answer is that the Old Testament says so. So you can hardly blame the teachers of the law for teaching that. But Jesus poses a conundrum when he quotes Psalm 110. It was written by David, who's the king. And he writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. When David says the Lord in the first bit of that quote, he's referring to God. And he says the Lord, God, said to my Lord... And he's referring to the Messiah. And Jesus points out, David, who is the great king, he refers to the Messiah as my Lord. It seems like this is a question of words. Jesus says, are we to think of the Messiah as somebody who's a descendant of David? Somebody who would look up to his great, 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 great grandfather. Somebody who looks up to King David? Or is the Messiah somebody who is above David? Somebody who David would look up to? Somebody greater than David? But what seems like a question of words is actually a question of authority because in posing this question, Jesus exposes how people misunderstand the Messiah and so how people misunderstand him. What people are expecting is just merely a descendant of David. What we find is that Jesus is the Lord of David. And this question of authority is what Mark has been highlighting throughout his whole account of Jesus' last day in the temple, which is in Mark 11 and 12. Earlier that day, the chief priests and the teacher of the law and the elders came up to Jesus and they demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? And today, we receive our fullest answer yet. Jesus heals and teaches and challenges with the authority of someone greater than David. 
the authority of the one who sat at God's right hand. Jesus has all the authority to be calling the shots in the temple. But the teachers of the law, they're guilty of what uh, millions of people since throughout the centuries have done, and I think something that we're in danger of buying into today. They underestimate the son. To them, the Messiah is a subject to be debated, a specimen to be studied, but not somebody that they would call their king, not someone they'd consider to have the authority to call the shots in their lives. And we get that attitude in the world around us quite a lot today. I was talking to a a doctor once um, who was um, talking about some medical procedures. I wasn't particularly comfortable with. I didn't think they were in line with Christian ethics about life and death. And she said, that's okay, I appreciate that, but religion can only take you so far. There comes a point when you need to to think about moving ahead with medicine here. Religion can only get you so far, she said. In other words, it's fine to be interested in Jesus, but at a certain point you need to stop letting him interfere with life. It's fine to have a pocket-sized Jesus, meek and mild, son of David and everything, but Lord of David, the king with the authority to call the shots, that's just a bit uncomfortable. Well, yes it is, because this question of authority becomes a question of victory when we think about the whole quote that Jesus is giving. Verse 36 tells us that God is working to put all of his enemies under the Messiah's feet. Look, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is actually quite an agitator here. There's little doubt that the enemies he's referring to are those religious leaders, and they know that that's what he's talking about. Back in verse 12, they cottoned on quite quickly that he was telling a parable against them. And now in in the uh, verses immediately previous to this passage today, Jesus has just gone about embarrassing the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the teacher of the law. All the religious authorities have just been embarrassed and exposed. And Jesus has told them that they don't know their Bibles properly. And now he's saying, I'm going to triumph over you in victory. You're going to be under my feet. Jesus with authority is quite a scary prospect. But Mark doesn't draw attention to the scariness of this. In fact, in verse 37, we're told that the large crowd listened to him with delight. See, the fact that the Son is also the Lord is terrifying news for those who underestimate him. But it's joyous news for the crowd who are hanging on his every word. The authority of Jesus is good news. It's music to the ears of those who welcome his lordship, of those who are continually giving themselves to God. But those who resist it, those who are out for their own honor, well, Jesus says they'll be put under his feet. And those two things is what Jesus goes to open up in the next two sections of our passage. He gives two lessons about what life is like under his lordship, Uh, starting with what he says in verses 38 to 40. He tells us, don't be impressed by long prayers. 
in the Christchurch office, <coughs> we've got a member of staff who um, is particularly given to a love of Oreos. I'm sure you know uh, somebody like that. Um, you probably have one in your own office. Um, everyone, every office has somebody a bit like that, I'm sure. Now, this particular staff member isn't ashamed to uh, admit that left to their own devices, uh, they would probably just be able to devour a whole packet of Oreos just in one sitting. I don't know if you've noticed um, in shops, the Oreos seem to, or the makers of Oreos seem to have branched out. And they've started to make all kinds of different flavors of Oreos. Um, There's cookie dough, peanut butter, birthday cake, birthday cake flavor biscuits, caramel apple, water metal, metal? well, that's not that ridiculous given the rest of them, watermelon, and my favorite, Swedish fish. Um, Although I wrote this before I got the picture there of um, cheeseburger flavor. And it says it's made with real ground beef, real mince in the biscuit. Well, our Oreo enthusiast, every time they hear about a new flavor, they're keen to get their hands on a packet and try it out. Uh, But it's, it's really quite interesting because the consensus in our office having tried lots of interesting flavors, not these ones, you'll be glad to hear. The consensus in our office is that the best flavor of Oreo is always, always the original. And these new flavors are not better flavors. They just make them so that you'll realize how good the original Oreos are. And then you finish eating them and you think, I want to go out and buy a pack of the original Oreos. So ultimately, it's just a marketing gimmick. The Oreo connoisseurs in our office will tell you, look, don't be fooled by the bright packaging, by limited edition emblazoned on the front, by the fancy names. It might seem like the Oreo company is breaking new ground and taking biscuits to the next level, but really it's just a ploy to get you to spend more money. What Oreo fans, what real Oreo fans want is just a good old Honest, plain Oreo. Now, I don't know if Jesus would have liked Oreos, uh, but we do know that he sees right through pretense. In verse 38, he warns the gathered crowd to watch out for those people whose religion is a sham, for whom it's just a show to the public. And Jesus tells the crowd to watch out because he he really doesn't want people to be fooled into thinking that this outward show of religion by the teachers of the law, that that holds any sway with God. Those who underestimate the son will want to make themselves lords in their own eyes. And so they make it so that they actually have quite impressive lives. Look how they're described in these verses. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Handshakes, hugs, pats on the back, winks, conversations. They know everyone. They are known by everyone. They're in the inner circle. They've got the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and, for a show, make lengthy prayers. These are people who are seen 
in public. They're liked. They're respected. They're honoured. Everyone knows them. And really, everyone wants to be a bit like them. And so they make these big, grand, public, long, eloquent prayers so that people can, just, can see just how holy and devout they really are. But Jesus says, don't be impressed by long prayers. Watch out. Don't see the impressiveness of these men as the benchmark for godly living. Because the truth is, behind this outward show, they're hollow. Their heart is set on their own honor, not God's. Uh, There's a little nod there to um, what we read last week um, in the passage, which is uh, verses 28 to 34. If you were here last week, you might remember that uh, that Jesus was getting right to the heart of the question, what's most important? And he said, what's most important is a heart that passionately loves God. And that will be expressed in love towards other people. Now, to the outside world, the teachers of the law look praiseworthy and devout. Uh, The people watching the teachers of the law have every reason to think that these are the most godly people you'll come across. The most honorable and respected people. But don't be fooled, says Jesus. Watch out. They have hearts that love themselves, not God. And so, instead of loving others, they exploit others. They devour widows' houses. They take money from the people who can afford it least. Well, people like this don't have a part to play in Jesus' kingdom where he is Lord. He says, they will be punished most severely. Now, once again, just as Jesus' words are scathing for the highbrow religious bigwigs, and perhaps you have found it touching a nerve if you've examined yourself and uh, realized that there's an outward show going on. But for the ordinary folk in the crowd, the people who are nobodies, the people who aren't seen, who are not respected, don't you think that they would probably still be listening to him with delight? Because there's, there's just something liberating to the ordinary folk about these words. You see, I'm in danger of, I'm an ordinary person, I'm in danger of buying in to the impressiveness of the teachers of the law. Because I have to admit, I wouldn't mind a piece of that. I wouldn't mind seeing my name in lights. I want to be seen, I want to be liked, I want to be honoured and respected. I want the best seats at banquets, wouldn't you? But Jesus says, watch out. Watch out that you don't buy into that. Don't imagine that success as a Christian is about the public recognition, is about respect and thanks. Watch out that you don't equate praise from people with praise from God. Watch out that you don't become a people pleaser instead of a God pleaser. And that is really liberating for ordinary folk because it means that the most important thing this week for you and me, well, is not having to be seen serving at church. It's not receiving loads of encouragement or being thanked. It's liberating because actually most weeks that's just not going to happen. 
These are liberating words because building your life around pleasing people and getting honor and glory for yourselves, well, that's just an impossible task. It's liberating because these words free us from our need to be validated and approved by others. So, says Jesus, watch out for anyone who by their impressive preaching or their executive job and large donations, by their encyclopedic Bible knowledge or their long prayers, watch out for anyone whose impressiveness makes you think that in Jesus' kingdom, you need to be a somebody to make a difference. Because you don't. And that's where Jesus goes in the next part of the passage. In verses 41 to 44, Jesus is teaching, don't despise the small change. Don't despise the small change. In the 1960s, there was a bricklayer in Chicago. I know it's not normally me who tells the stories about Chicago from this stage, um, but I got a story from Chicago. Um, There was this bricklayer from Chicago, and he taught his kids to share. I'd love to give you more of the story, but you see, I don't know this guy's name. I don't know anything more about him. You won't have heard of him. You won't find his story in books or on the internet. This isn't even his picture. I just put this up so that you'd know what a bricklayer from Chicago looks like. I don't know when this guy was born. I don't know what he ever achieved in life. But I do know that there was a bricklayer. And all he did was teach his children that what they own is not theirs, but it's for sharing with others in need. And he taught them that their family was not for themselves, but that that was something they should share with others. So for this bricklayer and his family, the most safe and stable part of of their children's lives, the family home, well, it was opened up and exposed and made vulnerable so that that family could share what they have with others and welcome people in need into their home. He didn't do much. He just taught his family to give everything. Well, this obscure bricklayer's son grew up to found a charity and that charity is called safe families for children you might have heard of that because it's a charity that as a church we've had a little bit of involvement with and this charity has helped look after over 20,000 families through times of crisis both in the UK and the US I still don't know the bricklayer's name I've no idea if any of the houses he built are still standing, but by simply teaching his kids to be willing to hold all they have with an open hand and give themselves, while thousands of homes have been kept together. Away from the impressiveness of the teacher of the law, people like this bricklayer have very little to show from life. But you see, his heart was not set on his own glory, but God's. And God took that little thing, that quiet faithfulness, the dinner conversations with his children that nobody saw, nobody celebrated, 
but God took it and turned it into something amazing. In our passage today, Jesus points out a woman, a woman whose name we never learn, whose life achievements are next to nothing. But like this bricklayer, she knew that what she has wasn't hers. She believed that it was worthwhile giving to God what is God's. Even if that's everything. And even though everything in her case amounted to just two pennies, Jesus said that she gave more than anyone else to his kingdom. In contrast with the impressive pomp of the teachers of the law, this poor woman is nothing but a weak and insignificant and really probably foolish nobody. And she's just giving a paltry donation. It really is worthless, a 2p, especially given that lots of other people, we're told, were already giving large sums of money into the pot. But Jesus holds this woman up as a model of someone who, in his kingdom, where Jesus is Lord, people like her make the biggest difference. And that's because Jesus sees what's important. A heart that passionately loves God. And that gives themselves fully over to God. Everything about the teachers of the law was external. Their popularity, their pretentious prayers. But Jesus is the Lord for whom the most important thing is that internal giving of the self. Heart, soul, mind and strength to God. See, everything external about this woman was just really unimpressive. It was weak. It was probably also a foolish decision to give everything she had into the offering. But in Jesus' eyes, she was doing the most important thing. She was giving herself completely to God. It's not just that she gave all her money. It's the very last bit of the last sentence there. She gave all she had to live on. In other words, she gave everything, even her life to God. In Jesus' kingdom, those who love themselves are put under his feet. But those who give themselves, even if they have little to give, well, they make the big contributions. And it comes down to the first point underestimating the son. You see, if you underestimate the son, if Jesus to you is somebody who you talk about and sing about, but his authority is not something that you're prepared to recognize, then no outward impressiveness or obedience is going to cut it with Jesus. But if you willingly give yourself to the authority of Jesus... You'll be free from that need to be recognized and approved, free from that pursuit of self-glory. It frees you to give all you have for Jesus' sake. It frees us to do that because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus isn't a Lord who demands our allegiance or else. He was sat at the right hand of God in heaven but came into our world in weakness and obscurity, born 
on the floor of a shed. He lived as a poor itinerant preacher, no fixed abode. But he was practicing what he was preaching. And when it comes to giving everything, everything is what he gave. But you wouldn't have been impressed by it. Because it led him to hang on a cross. Penniless peasant. Beaten and stripped naked. And he breathed his last and died in apparent weakness and defeat. But of course, in God's economy, giving everything in weakness is what God uses for the greatest things. And in his weakness and his death, Jesus achieved for us the freedom to live at peace with God in his kingdom. He bought for us the right to live under his lordship. The freedom to live under his lordship. It's because we have a Lord that gave himself so fully for us that we can be people who give ourselves fully to him and to each other. And you'll find that this not despising the small things is really liberating because although Jesus commands his follow, commends followers who give everything, there's no pressure for that to be impressive. Think of the older, disabled woman who sits in her room praying for her church. Nobody sees it. It's unimpressive. But God's not asking for something impressive. Last month, I went with a few others from Christchurch staff to help out at a university mission week in Newcastle. And on the face of it, that was relatively unimpressive. There were 25,000 students in the university, and there were 60 in the lunch bars, 80 if we're optimistic. And those Christian students who helped out, they were making decisions that looked to their colleagues to be a bit foolish. They were given up time to write assignments or to revise for exams, and they were doing it all to tell the gospel to others. It was unimpressive. It was foolish. But that's worth more in Jesus' eyes than any token religious gestures, no matter how grand. Because what cost a few students a grade will yield souls saved in eternity. There's the liberation in these words that means we don't have to be impressive. We just have to give our all. So if you're serious about Jesus' lordship, give yourself over to him. He uses the tiniest offerings to make the biggest differences. Be it stretching to give one pound a month to gospel work. Or just giving yourself to private prayer for our church, our country and our world. No one will see it. Or maybe it's showing hospitality to those who can't repay you. Or offering a spare bed to those who need it. Giving flyers out on campus. None of those things are going to be noticed. None of those things look impressive. And none of those things will make it look like you're making any difference. But all of that offered from the hand of somebody who is giving themselves over to God. Well, those small pennies can be used in big ways. Let's pray.
Lord, we recognize that the Son has all authority, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of David, is the person who has the authority to call the shots in our lives and to say what's what. We pray for the grace to not underestimate the Son, to not just relegate him to a side issue, but to submit ourselves wholly to him. We pray that we would know the liberty of not having to glorify ourselves, not having to be validated by others, but that we would know the liberty of being able to give ourselves over to you. And Lord, may we do that. May we find ways of doing that. And even though we won't be seen or noticed, we pray that you'll take what we offer and make it into great things. We ask this in Jesus' name.